Thanks, Tim. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Uh, it really is a privilege uh, to be here today, especially today on a day like today where we get to focus in all that much more on the resurrection of Christ. Uh, it's a joy to see what God's doing uh, in and through your church. Uh, it's just been an encouragement to me to see Tim uh, be raised up to be the shepherd uh, of this church. Uh, I recognize a few of you, so you may have heard this line from me before, but if you like Tim, I taught him everything that he knows. And if you don't like Tim, he's never listened to anything that I've said. But it really is a joy to be here. I don't usually preach three hours, but Tim asked if I, I would make it special for the you know, Resurrection Sunday. Now, if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 12. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 12. You know, a lot of hopes died in 2020. Maybe some of your hopes. Maybe you had a hope of job security or a promising financial future. Maybe a hope of good health and protection from disease for yourself or maybe a loved one. Republican leadership in government, personal freedom, religious liberty. Maybe some of these were some of your hopes that died in 2020, or maybe just the hope that you have control over all of your life and circumstances. You know, when we, these hopes die, we can have a variety of reactions. Sometimes we might feel discouraged or despairing because we lost something or someone that we hold dear. Sometimes we can be angry or frustrated because we feel like we're being prevented from enjoying the life that we wanted to live. Or maybe, even like the strangers on the road to Emmaus, we just feel disappointed or disillusioned and think that nothing will ever work out. And sometimes we, even as believers, we feel those things. But the wonderful thing about a day like today is that we're reminded that we don't have just earthly hopes. We have an ever-living heavenly hope that can never be taken away from us. And that's really what 1 Peter is all about, that we have an ever-living hope because Christ has been raised from the dead. And Peter's trying to encourage his readers that you can have hope in a hopeless world. And though our earthly hopes may die, we have a living hope that can never be taken away from us. A hope that doesn't reside on earth. A hope that will never die. A hope that is alive because our Savior is alive. Because of the resurrected Christ, you have resurrection hope. And so let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 12, and then we'll pray. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you, you who are protected by the power of God, through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, 
being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, might be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you haven't seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Lord, as we think back uh, over this last year, many of our hopes have died. Uh, Many of the things that we thought would never happen, happened. Uh, We've maybe suffered, some of us, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job. Uh, We've had to do things and do things in a certain way that is uncomfortable and we haven't wanted to do it. We've had to deal with oppressive governments and the global pandemic, and not only just all those things that sort of the whole world has been having to work through, but we've also, I'm sure, had just the various trials of life that each one of us have that are different from one another. And Lord, it is easy uh, to be discouraged or frustrated or angry or hopeless. And so we need to be reminded about our eternal hope the resurrection hope that we have in Christ because he was raised from the dead. That we look forward to an eternal, glorious future. That even our present troubles now have great meaning and significance. And that we are in a privileged place in salvation history because we are on this side of the cross. We of all people should be joyful and exuberant every day. We should have that inexpressible joy that Peter talks about. And yet we know that sometimes we don't. And so, Lord, we ask that you would forgive us uh, for being distracted by the trials of this life. And, Lord, encourage us this morning. Speak to us through your word. May we see Christ again. May we be just encouraged by the hope that we have in him. Use this time together to exalt your son in each of our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Well, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12 is really one kind of long sentence. And the main thought of this sentence is bless God. Bless God because you have a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Now, if you were someone receiving this letter from Peter when it was originally written, you might think, bless God. But Peter, we're in the midst of trials. We're in the midst of suffering. We have harsh bosses and oppressive governments. What do you mean, bless God? And Peter says, no, even after a year like 2020, what should you do? You should bless God because you have eternal hope. Peter wants you to zoom out and bless God. And as he zooms out, you're going to see that he wants you to look to your future where you're headed for all eternity. He wants you to have a good perspective on the present situation that you're in. And he even wants you to look back to the past to see that you have a unique place in salvation history. And so Peter knows that if you're going to be able to not only navigate, but have joy in the trials of this life, you need to remember how privileged you are to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And so first, through the resurrected Christ, you have a glorious future. Look at verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God has mercifully given you life and hope. I mean, you are an object of his great mercy. Mercy, right? Treating someone not on the basis of what they deserve. You deserved wrath. He showed you great mercy. I mean, think about it. What did you deserve? You deserved unrelenting, eternal, righteous anger and punishment for your sins. You deserved what Jesus received. And you deserved it for all eternity. But what did God give you instead? He gave you great mercy. He gave you compassion, kindness, and forgiveness through Christ's suffering in your place. I mean, does that help put 2020 in perspective? What did I eternally deserve and what did I eternally get from God? You're an object of his mercy. Not only that, you're alive. It says you have been born again to a living hope. You were dead, but he made you alive. You were dead. You were enslaved to lusts that would never satisfy you. You were presently dead, and then you were awaiting an eternal death away from the presence of God. But God made you alive. You're now able to experience joy and true satisfaction. And not only are you presently alive, but you're waiting an eternal life that's going to be forever with your Savior. Does that help put 2020 in perspective? In other words, you have hope. And when Peter says hope, he doesn't mean that you kind of have like an optimistic outlook on life, that you have a positive attitude, like, oh yeah, Christ died, so things will probably work out okay. No, he means you have a confident expectation of eternal good. What kind of hope do you have? He says you have a living hope. Why is it alive? Because Jesus Christ is alive. He was raised from the dead. When you think back to the Emmaus Road and those two men, it says that they had hope, right? We had hoped that Jesus was going to be all these things, but Jesus died. Well, he didn't stay dead. He's alive and you have hope. You were terrified of the future, but he gave you hope. And doesn't that put your trials in perspective? I mean, no matter how hard this life is, you have hope. What you had was fearful expectation of eternal disaster, but what you have now is confident expectation of eternal delight. You are alive, your hope is alive because Jesus is alive, and you will live forever. And just where are you going to spend that forever? Well, look at verse 4. You're going to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. 
imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. What else on earth can you say that about? What will never perish, never tarnish, or never fade? Nothing. God is giving you something that will never do those things. I mean, the best food spoils, your favorite genes wear out, your car breaks down, your house needs repairs, your aches and pains keep mounting up, you have to say goodbye to each and every loved one, but what God is giving you for eternity will never decay, never tarnish, and never fade. And you might think, but what if something happens to it? Well, nothing's going to happen to it because look what he says next. It's being reserved or guarded in heaven for you. Your inheritance is being guarded and your inheritance is in heaven. Why is that comforting news? Well, because Peter's readers are suffering the loss of their earthly things. Things are being taken away from them. Things are tarnishing and being ruined, but their eternal inheritance is guarded by one that no one can overpower. I mean, nothing on earth can be securely protected. We have no guarantees of our freedom, our bank accounts, or even the ones that we love. And I think this pandemic has reminded us just how vulnerable we are. Business was booming, now it's closed. We had landed the best job, now we're collecting unemployment. We were the picture of health, and now maybe we're fighting for our life. I mean, a friend of ours lost both of her parents within a week. There are no guarantees in this life. But we have a guarantee waiting for us in heaven. And what can we expect when we get to heaven? Well, we can expect that every day is going to get better and better and better. Why? Because that's where Christ is. You'll never have a day in the presence of Christ where you get bored. You'll never have a day in the presence of Christ where you wish you could be somewhere else. I don't know if you've ever been in one of those conversations where you're talking to someone, but you're kind of more interested in what's happening over here and you're a little bit distracted in the conversation that you are having. It's not going to be like that in heaven. You're never going to be standing before Christ and sort of peeking around Christ's shoulder to see what's going on somewhere else. No, you're going to be delighted every single day in heaven forever. My wife, Rhonda, and I, for our wedding, we had the best wedding cake. I mean, it was delicious. It was, you know, a chocolate cake with chocolate ganache and whipped cream and just really, really delicious. It's so good that every year on our anniversary, we go back to the bakery where we ordered it, and we order it again so that we can enjoy it every single year of our marriage. Well, after, after our wedding, Rhonda's family helped sort of clean up when we went on our honeymoon, and one of Rhonda's sisters took home a ton of leftover wedding cake. And while we were gone for two weeks, she ate that wedding cake every day for about two weeks. When we got back from our honeymoon, we asked how things are going, and she says, I never want to eat a piece of that cake ever again. <laughs> but heaven is not going to be like that. You're never going to get sick of it. It's only going to get better and better and better for all eternity. It's that good because Christ is that good. Now, you might be thinking, well, that sounds great. This eternal, joyful inheritance that I have, it's protected, it's in heaven. But what if something happens to me? What if something happens to me and I don't get to enjoy this eternal inheritance that God's protecting? 
Well, look what he says in verse five. Not only is your inheritance being protected, you are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. Your inheritance isn't the only thing that's protected. You are being protected. What are you being protected by? The power of God. The same power that creates everything out of nothing is protecting you. The same power that could raise Jesus from the dead is protecting you, is guarding you. Nothing's going to happen to you. You're going to be protected how? He says you'll be protected through faith. Now, this doesn't mean that you'll be protected if you have faith. No, what it's saying is God's going to protect you through faith. God's going to protect you by keeping you believing in the truth. He's going to ensure that your faith never fails so that you'll get to enjoy your eternal inheritance. He's going to give you faith in those hardest moments of your life. He's going to keep you believing because he's going to make sure that you get to enjoy your eternal inheritance. You will enjoy your salvation. Bless God because through the resurrected Christ, you have a glorious future. I know life is hard and I know that trials can be all consuming and I know that this has been the hardest year of many of our lives, but zoom out and look at your future. You have a glorious, eternal, protected, never disappointing future waiting for you. And you are the ones who are being guarded by the power of God. You know, life is kind of like the high school of eternity. I don't know if this was your high school experience, but when I was in high school, everything was life or death, right? If this person that I liked liked me, then I was feeling really great. If the person didn't like me, it seemed like my life was over. If I did well in a class, life was good. If I did bad in a class, it seemed like my life was over. But as you kind of move out of high school, as you maybe go into college or go into the working world, you get a little perspective. And you look back on your high school and your experience and you think, what was wrong with me? It's like, why did I get so flipped out about everything, about every relationship, every conversation, every class that I was in? I think it's going to be like that when we're enjoying heaven for eternity. We're going to look back at this life and we're going to think, what was wrong with me? Why did I get so worked up about the various trials in my life? I knew where I was going, an eternal, blessed future with Christ. You know, one day, 10,000 years from now, 10,000 pure, blissful, Christ-filled years from now, in total splendor, you're going to look back at whatever trial was going on in your life, and it will be nothing. And you'll smile, and you'll look at the face of your Savior once again, and you'll know that after these 10,000 years, you have no less days to enjoy Christ than when you first began. So bless God for your glorious future. When the last dollar leaves the bank account or the ridicule feels like it's too much to bear, remember, you have a glorious eternal future that you're looking forward to. Let the hopes that died in 2020 remind you of your glorious future in Christ. You're looking forward to an eternity without any more difficulties. And so bless God for mercifully giving you that future. 
But there's another reason to bless God. He's, Peter zoomed out, he's told you about the future, but he also wants you to have the right perspective on right now, on the trials that you're going through right now. And so secondly, through the resurrected Christ, your trials have a glorious purpose. Look at verse six. It says, in this, in this salvation that you're going to enjoy from verse five, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. What Peter wants you to know first in these verses is that God is in complete control of your trials, right? Your trials don't have to kill your joy because you know that God is in control of them. Look how he describes them. He says they're temporary, right? They're just for a little while. They're not gonna last forever. They're only really a this life problem. They're not gonna be a next life problem, right? That's why he says now you've been distressed by various trials. These aren't gonna be things that you'll ever have to experience after this life. It's just a now problem. And then he says that they're necessary. He says if necessary. The thought here is not that trials might be necessary or might not be necessary in your life. No, the thought is if you're experiencing a trial, it's because God views it as necessary in your life. Why does God view trials as necessary in your life? Well, that's because God uses your trials for a good purpose. Look at verse seven. The first purpose he points out is that trials prove that your faith is genuine. Verse seven, you've been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found. Right? God wants your tested, genuine faith to be found, to appear, to be shown. You're distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith might be found. God wants to use your trials to prove your faith. And this does not mean that you're proving your faith to God. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that God does this to prove your faith to yourself and to those around you. God wants to show you and those around you that your faith is genuine, that it's real, that it can't be taken away by various trials. Now you might think to yourself, you know what, like I don't really need my faith to be proven, so if that could mean like a life without trials, without hardships, I think I'll just take an unproven faith and no trials in my life. That sounds better than a proven faith. And Peter says, no, you don't want an unproven faith, you want a proven faith. How valuable is it to Peter? He says it's more valuable than gold. And think about who's writing this letter, Peter. Does Peter know anything about the relationship of trials and faith? I mean, Peter knew the heartache of an unproven faith. I mean, when Christ was being taken away to be crucified, he denied Christ three times. And he wept bitterly. And so Peter's saying, I don't want that for you. I want you to know that trials are there to prove the genuineness of your faith. You want a proven faith. You need it. And those around you also need it. Think about the benefit of a proven faith to yourself. What would happen if you never experienced a trial? 
well, your faith would remain weak. Future trials could cripple or devastate you. But maybe more than that, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know the sweetness of Christ carrying you through a trial. Or you wouldn't know the kindness in love of God as he disciplines and matures you through each of life's difficulties. Each trial refines you. Each trial loosens the grip of this world a little more. Each trial fashions you to be a little more like your Savior. Each trial gives you more of Christ. And each trial is going to strengthen your faith in God. So Peter says, you want that. You want your faith to be shown as being genuine. But more than that, look at the end of verse 7, because trials are also going to bring praise and glory and honor to Christ. He says, so that the proof of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A proven faith brings praise and glory and honor to Christ because he's seen not just as the savior, but he's seen as the life changer and the sustainer, even through the most painful paths of life. Trials show that Christ is glorious even when I lose my job, that he's glorious even when my relationships are difficult, that he's glorious even when cancer takes a loved one. Oftentimes, the people around us see the value of Christ most clearly when we go through trials. I mean, how else are people going to know that Christ is more valuable than riches if we don't lose them? How will they know that he's more valuable than a relationship if we don't sometimes lose the ones we love? How will they know he's more valuable than our dreams if a few of those dreams don't get dashed? You want people to see how glorious Christ is, right? And so welcome the trials in your life because they're going to bring praise and glory and honor to Christ. And you want that, why in verse eight? Because you love Christ. He is the source of your joy. So anything in your life that could bring praise and glory and honor to the one that you love, to the one who gives you joy, you want that. Look what he says in verse eight. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Why do you want Christ to get more praise and glory and honor when he appears? Because he's the one that you love. He's the one that is the source of your joy. He's the one who secured your salvation. And if my trials are going to be the way that other people will see how glorious Christ is, then bring on the trials. Not because I want those, right? I don't want the trials in and of themselves, but I want the Savior that I love, the Savior who gives me inexpressible joy, the Savior who is raised from the dead and has secured my salvation. I want more people to see how glorious he is. Your trials are a God-given calling to display the glory and praise and honor of Jesus Christ. And now think about this. If your trials are going to be a way to bring glory and honor to Christ, if your life is patterned after Christ, what sort of trials might you expect in this life? I mean, sure, there are the various hardships that come along, but Peter in this letter is focused on a very particular kind of trial. 
And he's already alluded to it in verse three when he says that God, because of his great mercy, right? What is mercy again? Mercy is I don't treat people the way that they deserve to be treated. So what kind of trials might you expect in this life if your life is patterned after Christ and is meant to bring him glory and praise and honor, you might be put in situations where you have to treat people not on the basis of what they deserve. And that's exactly what 1 Peter is going to talk about. You're dealing with a situation where you have a harsh master, an unbelieving spouse, an oppressive government. Why would I love them? Why would I submit to them? Why would I serve them? Because that's what Christ did for you when you didn't deserve it. I mean, think about the glory that Christ can get when you treat a harsh boss with respect and hard work. Not because he deserves it, but because that's how Christ treated you. Think about the glory Christ can get when you serve a spouse who doesn't serve you. Again, not because they deserve it, but because that's the way that Christ treated you. Think about the glory Christ can get when you submit to a government who does things that you don't agree with. Again, not because they deserve it, but because it's an opportunity to treat people with great mercy. I mean, where else are people going to see forgiveness, compassion, and mercy unless Christ's people show it when they're treated unfairly? I mean, you love your Savior, right? I mean, he is the source of all your joy. You can't believe that he would save you. Then allow your trials to put him on display through responding to suffering like he did. And he will be glorified. And through your suffering, that harsh boss, the unbelieving spouse, or the oppressive government official, they just might catch a glimpse of the glory and honor of Christ and be saved. The difficulties in your life just want you to focus on yourself, right? They want you to think, well, I don't deserve this, or these are never going to end, or everything seems like it's out of God's control and unnecessary. Don't let them do that. Let them remind you that God has a glorious purpose for your trials. Let them remind you that they will strengthen and prove your faith. And most of all, let them remind you that they will give you an opportunity to give Christ greater praise and glory and honor when he comes. And so bless God that through the resurrected Christ, your trials have a glorious purpose. When those trials want all your attention, let them remind you of the resurrection hope that you have in Christ. They're there to give you an opportunity to display and glorify Christ. And so Peter is encouraging you to bless God through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. He's talked about you have a glorious eternal future. He's talked about even your present trials have a glorious purpose. And then he even wants you to look back over all of human history and think how privileged you are to be in this position. And so last point, through the resurrected Christ, you have a privileged place in history. Look at verse 10. Christ is the focus of all human history. It says, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. 
What Peter is saying is that you get to see every single day what every prophet longed to see up until when Christ came. Right? The prophets who would prophesy of the grace that would come to you, they made careful searches and inquiries. They were searching high and low. They were zooming in. They were zooming out. They were examining every detail. How is God going to do it? Right? They couldn't wait. They wanted to see. They knew that there was a person coming, and they knew that he was going to right every wrong. They knew that he was going to be the eternal savior. I mean, it was like they had these concert tickets, but the concert wasn't for another six months, and they just couldn't wait until the Messiah would finally come. In verse 11, what are they looking forward to? What person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So they're asking those questions. When is the Messiah going to come? Who is it going to be? It's like the prophets are getting all these different pieces to the puzzle and they're starting to put those pieces together. And as they gets closer and closer to the puzzle being complete, there's more and more excitement. We do a lot of puzzles in our home, especially around the holidays. And puzzles already sort of start out slow at first, right? I mean, you kind of open the box, maybe you get the edge pieces, you know, you collect those. And then you start working on different pieces, you know, sections of the puzzle. But then there's an excitement that starts coming as you get more and more pieces together. And as those fewer and fewer pieces left, you start kind of racing to see who's going to get to put those pieces in. And then sometimes someone might even like pocket one piece so that they get the joy of putting that last piece in the puzzle. That's the picture that Peter's painting. That's really what all of human history has been until Christ, that all of these pieces are being put together. Genesis 3, he's going to, you know, be the one that crushes the head of the serpent. Isaiah 53, he's going to be the one who's pierced for our iniquities. Psalm 2, he's going to be a king who reigns forever. They're getting all of these pieces and they're wondering, who is it? How is this person going to suffer and be glorified? When is it going to happen? And there's more and more excitement building. And then in verse 12, though, it's revealed that they're not serving themselves. They're actually serving you. You being the people that would see God complete that puzzle. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. And these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. I mean, they're looking and looking, and it turns out that they're actually not serving themselves, they're serving you. The prophet's greatest desire was to get to see what you and I see every single day. I mean, they were begging for a glimpse of how God was going to rescue his people through the Messiah. And we get to enjoy the full picture of what God has done through Christ every single day. We are so privileged to be where we are in human history. I mean, imagine how many diseases from, you know, 100, 200 years ago can be easily cured right now. Right, maybe just by taking a pill. And this is not a public announcement about the vaccine or anything like that. Just an illustration. But imagine that you know, you're talking to these people from 200 years ago, and they're dying of this disease. And we can just take a pill, and that disease is gone. And imagine you're talking to this person. It's like, yeah, I see that you're dying, but it's like, I really don't like to take pills. And it's, I, they, I find them uncomfortable. It's like, you have the cure, right? 
I mean, it's like that we could look back over the course of human history. We'd be talking to these prophets and be like, yeah, I have got this really unreasonable boss and my job is really hard, right? It's like, you have Christ. You have what I've been yearning to see. Yeah, but my friends, like, they're kind of mean to me. And sometimes they mock me, like, because I'm a Christian. You have Christ. Yeah, but the government, it's like, they won't let me go outside. They tell me I have to. You have Christ. Do you realize how privileged you are? All of God's people before Christ were straining their necks forward to catch a glimpse of what you get to witness every single day. We don't have to wonder how God's going to accomplish this great salvation. We don't have to wonder how it can be that the Messiah can be the one who both suffers and then is glorified. We don't have to wonder how God is going to be the just and the justifier of those that trust in him. We've seen Christ. We get to rejoice over those truths every single day. Don't let what God has done for you in Christ become stale. You are in the most privileged place in human history on this side of the cross to see what God has done in Christ. But not only is Christ the focus of all human history, Christ is also the focus of all of heaven. Look at the very last phrase in verse 12. These are things into which even angels long to look. You get to see what angels long to see. It's not just that the prophets wanted to see this. Even the angels wanted to see how Christ was going to rescue a people through his Messiah. They long to see it, it says. They long to look. They crave it. They yearn with great interest. It's like that feeling when you see a great movie, right? And then you know that the sequel to that movie is not going to happen for like another year, And yet that feeling when you get out of the first movie, it's like you just want to know how it's all going to happen, how it's all going to be wrapped up. That's the the feeling that the angels have as they look to what God is doing in Christ. They long to look, not just a glance, but a bending down to really examine. If you've ever been to Monterey or somewhere on the coast and you have kids, you know, it's that, that excitement that comes when you kind of go to the beach, right? And there's tide pools and the kids get kind of crowded around and they're all looking and they want to see, you know, what's going to happen and what's under this rock. Like that's the angels longing to see what God is doing in Christ. Longing to see what you get to see every single day. I mean, the picture is of all of heaven gathered around in excitement, looking down at the father's work through Christ. It's like, oh, look at this one. Look at this one. The father's going to do it. He's going to open his eyes right here. He's going to make him see Christ and make him see his sin, and he's going to rejoice. He's going to open their eyes so they finally see who Christ is. And the angels long to look for it. They rejoice greatly when they see it. I mean, realize how privileged you are to be a recipient of the Father's great mercy through the resurrected Christ. It's like, so about those trials, it's like, what trials? What trials do I have when I zoom out, when I see what's waiting for me in the future, when I see what God's doing in the present through my trials, when I look at the privileged place I have in human history, what trials do I have? I don't have trials. I just have more and more opportunities to bring praise and glory and honor 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a glorious future. My trials have a glorious purpose. I have the glorious Christ. I have resurrection, eternal hope. Again, the trials, they want to distract you from these realities. Don't let them do that. You have the focal point of all human history. You have the focal point of all of heaven. You know, a lot of hopes died in 2020. Maybe some of your hopes. But let them drive you back to the eternal resurrection hope that you have in Christ. In Christ, you have a hope that will never die. You're looking forward to a future that will be with God, will never end, will only get better day after day, and even your trials right now have a glorious purpose. Let's pray. Lord, when we see things in this perspective, we welcome the death of our earthly hopes if it means that Christ is going to be seen as more glorious. We are so thankful to be your people. We're so thankful that our sins were paid for by Christ on the cross. We're so thankful that he did not stay dead, that he is alive, that even now he intercedes for us. He sustains our faith. He is seen every day through our trials as being more and more valuable. So Lord, may we live in light of this resurrection hope that we have. May Christ be sweeter to us day after day, even when we go through trials. Lord, we pray that our trials would bring greater praise and glory and honor to the one that we love, to the one that, who is the source of inexpressible joy to us, the one who has secured our eternal salvation. Lord, remind us of that. We need not just a yearly reminder of that or even a weekly reminder of that. We need daily reminders of that to keep us living this life in a way that glorifies Christ. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to be around your word, to hear you speak. And Lord, I pray for great fruit to come, not just through the preaching of this message, but through the life of this church. May this church be a church that is known for having the character of Christ. May they with joy go out and talk to their coworkers and their family and those around them about the glorious Christ. May they go out and tell people that their sins can be forgiven, that they can have an eternal secure future through the resurrected Christ and give them and strengthen them and give them great joy, even in the midst of their trials so that Christ would be glorified all the more. Pray this in his name. Amen.